It's the 78th Psalm, if you'll turn there, please. The 78th Psalm. Now, after you found the 78th Psalm, if you'd take time as well to mark in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 10, if you'll just have it marked and ready, so we can turn there quickly a little bit later on, that would be good. But we're going to read in the 78th Psalm, and uh, then we're going to make a reference to a couple of other places, but read one verse out of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. You'll see that as we get there in a little while. Now, if you don't mind standing for the reading of the Word of God, we're going to um, begin reading in verse number 1, and you can see that this is a long psalm, 72 verses, 72 verses. I'm sure that some of you are probably saying, oh man, he's not short anyway. 72 verses? Yep. We're not going to cover it all, are we? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Uh, but actually, we're going to cover it in a big picture way. So it's not like we're going to try to work our way through every verse, nothing like that. We're going to look at it in a big picture way, so don't be alarmed about the time. Now, you can see that this is a, uh, the heading there says, a Mishil of Asaph. Now, Asaph was a Levite, a musician, poet, songwriter, that was Asaph. And a mashiel is a song or a poem of contemplation. We're supposed to think about this. We're supposed to learn. It's didactic in nature. It's, it is for the purpose of teaching us something. So we're going to read only the first 11 verses and then call attention to some other verses because this psalm takes on kind of an unusual form that I'm going to do my best to explain as we go through it. So, Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Oh, by the way, once I've read and prayed, please remain standing. Even if I forget by the time I've said a prayer afterwards, please remain standing. Please. Okay? So, don't make me have you sit down and then stand up again. And I, I might well forget we're supposed to remain standing by the time I'm done. Uh, reading, but please remain standing. We're going to do something together. All right, so now look at verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength, now watch this, and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, primarily a reference to the northern kingdom, you know, that when they divided uh, north and south. The northern kingdom is often referenced by the prophets as Ephraim, southern kingdom as Judah. All right, so when he says uh, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows, 
turn back in the day of battle. This is primarily a reference to the actions of that northern kingdom. Nonetheless, verse 10, they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forget his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Now, I want to just call your attention to the fact that three times we see a reference to the wonderful works of God or to the works of God that he showed them. Verse 4, verse 7, and then again in verse number 11. All right, we're going to have a word of prayer, and then I'll ask you to remain standing, and we're going to do something together here just very quickly. Father, we are very grateful for the privilege to assemble together with Riverside Baptist Church. Thank you for the opportunity my wife uh, have to be here yet again and to be a part of the meeting and a part of the services here. We do pray, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. We are foolish to think that anything of eternal value can be accomplished just in oratory or by the energy or the efforts of our flesh, O oh God. We acknowledge our dependence upon the working of your blessed Holy Spirit. And I pray that he would be at work, strong at work, O oh God, that this might be meaningful, helpful, profitable to every life individually, yes, and to the life of this congregation corporately. I do pray now that you would add your blessings to the reading and this effort to preach the word and use this time together for your own purposes and your own glory, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now, I'm going to lead a song. I'm not a song leader, uh, but I'm not a singer, but I'm going to do this anyway, lead uh, this song. You know the song. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Come on, how many of us have been singing that for years and years and years? Couldn't even begin to count how many times we've sung the song. I have decided to follow Jesus. Now, we're not going to sing it all in a bunch of rounds and such as that. So I'm going to, you're going to join me in singing to begin with, and then when I tell you to stop, please stop. If you don't, you're, you are wanting attention. <laughs> so please, uh, when, I, when I do this, then just stop, and then I'll finish a phrase. All right, ready? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Ready? Everybody sing it. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. But if he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. I will turn back. You like it? No. No. No, I don't expect this is going to catch on, and churches everywhere will be singing it like this at all. It's bad, isn't it? It's bad. There are people that would never sing those words. If he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. There are people that would never join in the singing of that line that do that very thing. That's what this psalm is about. We're going to see that. And by the grace of God, learn from it. God bless you. you. may be seated. Thank you for cooperating.
This psalm, <clears throat> if you would take the time to read it, and I'm going to say read it several times, I think you'd find that this psalm <clears throat> um, has a repetition of sorts of the first 11 verses that we read about six times. What is, what is taking place here in verse number 1 through 11, you'll see it take place again about six times. Now, some of it is very clearly defined and divided. Some of it is not so clear. So somebody might say, I only found five, or somebody might say, I found seven. But we're not going to worry about that. You'll find the same thing uh, gone over time and time again. And here's what it is. It's a, it's a twofold movement that you'll see like we saw in our verses. Uh, one of the things you see is a reminder from the psalmist of the wonderful works of God upon the nation of Israel. Now, most of the works that are mentioned in the course of the psalm have to do with, you can see it very clearly, it has to do with the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage, uh, the plagues that came upon Egypt, the miraculous deliverance, uh, the parting of the waters of the Red Sea to escape from the pursuing army of Pharaoh, and then the provision of God in every way in the wilderness experience. So when you see the works of God mentioned, then it's not exclusively, but almost exclusively, having to do with that. The deliverance from Egyptian bondage, the deliverance at the Red Sea, and the provision of God. We're talking about water when there was no water. We're talking about food that came from heaven. And we're talking about God's protection with the cloud by day, the fire by night, and all the ways that God took care of them. And what you're going to see is a reminder of what I'm going to put up here as a high-level blessing, the wonderful works of God. That's the first movement. And you see that over and over through this long psalm. The second movement is, I'm going to put it down here, the sad response of the children of Israel to the wonderful works of God. So can you see the high and low thing here? I mean, the wonderful works of God. That's high-level high level blessing right there. And the sad response of the people of God uh, to the wonderful works of God. And so again, I want to say that if you study the psalm for yourself, I invite anybody to do that. Obviously, you can. And you'll see that this is repeated over and over and over again. Now, one of the things that I, reasons that I would say uh, the wonderful works of God is because they are obviously the wonderful works of God and called that more than once. Uh, these blessings that God gave, the ways that he provided, the ways that he protected, the ways that he delivered, all of these things are known as God making known his wonderful works for everyone to know and everyone to be blessed by. See, uh, the, and they were all the beneficiaries of the wonderful works of God and then participated in the low-level response to the wonderful works of God. Now, how did they respond? Well, uh, it, let, let me just give you a little quiz here, and you can answer out loud if you know it. If you don't want to answer out loud, that's fine too. Uh, but if, if I said to you as a Bible reader, a Bible student, I said, uh, the Bible makes it clear 
one reason that the people did not enter into God's rest or the land of Canaan without this uh, wandering around and a whole generation dying. There, there is one word that describes why they did not go into the promised land and that generation died. And that one word was? Okay, I'm going to give you the Bible word. There are several ways to say it. Unbelief. It was their unbelief. You can read that in the book of Hebrews, the commentary on this section as well. And it would show you that they did not enter in because of their unbelief. Now, if we go through this passage here, uh, I want to show you how this unbelief is manifest. Look in verse number 10. In the verses that we read, in verse number 10, they had seen the wonderful works of God. It's called to their attention three times in these verses. And they kept not the covenant and refused to walk in his law. So I heard somebody say disobedience. Well, that is exactly right. Their disobedience came about because they simply did not believe. All right? And uh, so if you look down at verse number 17, you can see that between verse 11 and 17, there's some more of the wonderful works of God. And verse 17, they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And look in verse number 22. After some more wonderful works are listed, uh, then in verse number 22, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. And look down at verse number 32. After some more wonderful works are listed, they responded in verse 32, for, they all, for all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. And some more wonderful works are listed in verse 37, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in their covenant. So again, if we take the Bible commentary on this, all of those things amount to what we read here two, maybe three times, and that is they simply did not believe God. They saw his wonderful works, okay? They saw the waters part. They saw the dry ground they saw the protection of God. They saw the cloud and the pillar of fire. They saw it work behind them to blind the Egyptians and show the way for the Israelites. They saw that. They saw Pharaoh's army floating around, horses, soldiers, buggies, or uh, what's those? Uh, chariots. That's what it was, not buggies, but chariots. And, and they saw those in the, in the Red Sea. They saw all of that. They saw the bread come from heaven every day. I said every day, six days a week, they saw the bread come from heaven. They saw the water come out of the rock and flood the dry places of the desert. They saw a, desert, a, a tree cast into poison water and it was made sweet. They saw all of that. They saw God take care of the Amalekites that were coming up behind them to destroy them. Come on, friends. Time after time after time, they saw the wonderful works of God. And though they saw those wonderful works, when it came down to it, they didn't believe God. Sad. See why I call it the sad response of the people of God? So you have that over and over. And so their sin was they simply did not believe. But that sin led to, uh, I, 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 I worked and worked at this to try to say it right, but the only way, the, the, what I've come up with to try to make us understand what happened is that it's not just they didn't believe, that their sin expanded to something more. What would that be? Well, let me show you. Look in verse number 18. Now watch this. And they tempted God in their heart 
by asking meat for their lust. Now, in their unbelief, they, the scripture says, tempted God. In this case, he points out, when they ask meat because of their lust, their passion, their desire for what they used to have back in the land of Egypt. So they tempted God. You saw that in verse 18. Look down at verse number 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. So there it says the second time that not only did they not believe God, but in their unbelief, their actions and their attitude, watch this now, tempted God, says it twice. Yea, three times. Look in verse 56. Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not His testimonies. Now, friends, if it's said one time that the Israelites tempted God, that's something worth paying attention to. There's no question about it. And they tempted God, and it ought to be avoided for reasons we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But my goodness, it says it three times. It says it in verse number, four, uh, verse number 18. It says it in verse number 41. And it says it again in verse number 56. Now, I, I can't prove this, and I'm not trying to make more of it than I think we should, but whenever we see places in the Bible where something is pre, uh, uh, repeated three times in a relatively short amount of, of, uh, of writing, then doesn't it kind of get your attention? And don't you think that that's kind of what God means for it to do, is to get our attention and say, well, we need to pay attention to this because he said it once, he said it twice, he said it three times, and we're the same account here. Uh, And that is that they not only did not believe God, that's stated more than once, but also they tempted God. What does that mean, tempted God? How How does a person tempt God? God. The Bible says that God tempted no man with evil, and God cannot be tempted with evil. That's what James said. So what does it mean that they tempted God? What what is that about? Well, I think in order to show that or to try to make it clear in our minds, because it is a significant matter, it's a very significant part of this psalm, uh, then maybe we ought to call attention to a couple of places where God was tempted. And the first one I'll call to your attention, and to me it's the clearest and the foremost, and that would have to do with when Jesus had been baptized. You remember that he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted of the devil. And so after Jesus was baptized and the Lord spoke from heaven, God spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased, then he was led of the Spirit to go into the wilderness and to be tempted of the devil. And he fasted then for 40 days and 40 nights. And after 40 nights, uh, 40 days and 40 nights, here came the devil and tempted Jesus. Now what did he say? He said... Uh, We'll go with Luke's account. Matthew's is like it, only a reversal in one area there in the order. But in uh, Luke's account, who set these things in order, he said. And so in Luke's account, uh, it says that after 40 days and 40 nights, he was unhungered. And the devil came and said, if thou be the son of God. Now right there, I want to punch somebody in the mouth. How about you? If thou be the son of God. If thou be the son of God then you turn these stones into bread. Secondly, he said, if thou be the Son of God, 
then you bow down and worship me. So there was something supernatural going on and they were in a place where the kingdoms of the world could be seen and as they were there, the devil said, if you'll bow down and worship me, then I will give you all of these kingdoms and you'll have authority and ability to rule over them. If you're the son of God, bow down and worship me and you'll do that. And the third thing he said, he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and he said, it is written that he hath given his angels charge concerning thee, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And so he said, if you'll cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and go down to the earth totally unharmed, then the people there around that temple will recognize that you are indeed the Messiah and the Son of God, and you should be believed. So he said these three things, bow down and worship, uh, uh, excuse me, turn the stones into bread, bow down and worship me, and cast yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. Now, this morning, like we said, that anytime somebody tried to catch Jesus in his words, he always had the answer. Oh boy, did he have the answer. And so the adversary, the devil comes, the enemy comes, and he comes to tempt Jesus Christ, and he says, turn, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Well, he had the answer for that. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God about being uh, worshipped, he said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And from the pinnacle of the temple, he said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And told the devil to get hence, and he departed him from him for a season. That's what the Bible says. So uh, here's how he tempted the devil. What is, what is actually taking place? Turn the stones into bread. Bow down and worship me. And cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Here's what was taking place. The devil was saying to Jesus, I will determine the criteria by which you should be known as the Son of God. Now, if you're the Son of God... Turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms like he had the power to do that. And if you're the son of God, then cast yourself off to the pinnacle of the temple. Is everybody with me here? And basically what the devil is saying is this. I will establish the criteria or the conditions by which you should be known as the Messiah or as the Son of God, you do these things as I say, and you should be known as the Messiah. I will determine those conditions. Basically, Jesus' answer is this. Oh, no, you won't. You don't determine the conditions by which I will be recognized as Messiah. And basically, he is saying to him, my Father will determine those conditions, and that criteria by which I will be known. Not you, devil. That is to tempt Jesus and to say, I am setting the criteria. I am setting the conditions. You meet these conditions, and you should be known as the Messiah. No. False. Wrong. Lie. My father determines the conditions. He determines the conditions. He determines the time. He determines how. He determines when. He determines where. God does everything, not the devil. See? Okay, well, that's probably not any brand new news to anybody. I don't know if you've ever really thought about it 
in that particular way, but that is exactly what the devil was doing in the temptation. Let me give you another time, or we'll come back to this, uh, another time when God was tempted. Uh, go to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. I ask you to turn there, and we'll get a reference here from the Apostle Paul uh, who brings this matter up as he is writing to the Corinthians. Now, uh, you know the Corinthian, was, uh, Corinthian church was a pretty troubled church. And so what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, encouraging Israel to be, uh, encouraging rather, the church of Corinth to be what they are supposed to be and not to make the same mistake that Israel made in the wilderness. See? Because look in verse number 4. They all drank of that same spiritual drink. They drank of that rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock in the wilderness that produced the water on both occasions was a picture and a type of Jesus Christ, the living water. And then he said in verse number 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, and that whole generation of unbelievers died. Now watch this. Now these things were examples to us, to the uh, examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And he repeats that pretty much again in verse 11 and says all these things happened unto them for in samples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Okay, so these things are written. Hold on just a second. This Old Testament account that he is calling attention to is recorded not just so we would know the facts of history, but so that we would be taught and learn ourselves. Say amen, please. I mean, uh, that was just, did you turn this off? Uh, let, let me run that by again. Uh, these things are written so that they might not make those mistakes, and they are living the Word of God so you and I might not make those mistakes. Okay, thanks for turning that back on. Everybody heard that. All right, now look down at verse number, look down at verse number 7. In other words, he is saying, don't you be idolaters like they were idolaters. Verse 8, don't you commit fornication like they committed fornication. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Is everybody listening? Let's look at it again. Verse number 10, 9, verse number 9. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted God and were destroyed of serpents. How many stories do you remember in the Bible where serpents came into play and bit people and they start dying? How many places do you know? Well, I can tell you, if you know this one, one. There's one time. He is obviously making a, a reference to what we know as recorded in the book of Numbers in chapter 21. And that's when God, watch this now, this is, not everybody can stomach this across our hypersensitive churches and hypersensitive preachers that are hypersensitive to hypersensitive people. Not everybody can take this. But God sent serpents to bite people so that some would die. <gasps> God wouldn't do that. He did it. He did it. I don't mean to say it like I'm glad he did, but since he did, I'm glad it's recorded because so we can learn from it and not make the same silly mistakes that they made. That's what he's talking about here. All right? Now, now what, is, what happened there? 
Because whatever happened, the serpents came in because God had been tempted by the people. Now, how did they tempt God? Uh, Again, I would invite you to write down and read for yourself. It would take quite a while for all of us to go study all of this. But you have a Bible. You go read it yourself, and you'll see in Numbers chapter 20 and 21. So that you come to chapter 21 and verse number 5, and the Bible says, now watch this. The Bible says, and the people were much discouraged because of the way, and they spake of stoning Moses, and they wanted to forsake it all and go back to the land of Egypt. And so they spake against God, and they spake against Moses, and they had uh, spoken of stoning Moses, and they wanted to go back to the land of Egypt. Now, what was their problem? Well, the Bible says, now watch this, they were much discouraged because of the way. Now, this is a whole sermon in itself, and I may have preached it here, but I'm not going to go back and do that again. I'm just going to say the people were much, they didn't say they were discouraged. If they were discouraged, discouraged is this big. If the Bible says they were much discouraged, it's this big. And the people was much discouraged because of the way. That's what the Bible says. And somebody says, well, bless their heart, they were just discouraged. Well, discouragement, as we understand it in the Word of God, is not a bless your heart moment. We don't don't say, some members might come up and say, Pastor, would you pray for so-and-so? Bless their heart, they're just discouraged. And sometimes people might get mixed up about what discouragement is. In other words, if I am grieving over the passing of dear ones, I may grieve and not even be close to being discouraged. I may at the same time I'm grieving rejoice that they are free from this body of pain and they're present with the Lord. See, doesn't mean I'm discouraged because I grieve. You can grieve as those that, uh, not, but not as those who have no hope. See, and, and, uh, and, and so discouragement is not, if a person has a burden, it doesn't mean they're discouraged. You can have a burden. Did you ever have a burden for a lost soul? A lost loved one? Did you ever shed bitter tears and, and, uh, and wet the pillow on your bed praying for somebody that's away and far from God? The fact that you care about them and are burdened doesn't mean you're discouraged at all. Because discouragement doesn't have to do with a burden. It doesn't have to do with grief. It doesn't have to do with calling special attention to something that you care a great deal about. You care a great deal about a lot of things and not even be close to discouraged. Watch this. To discourage means I've lost spirit. I've lost heart. I don't even want to follow anymore. A part of the definition of the word discouraged there is the word vexed. And vexed has to do with being pressed down. You remember how the filthy conversation of the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah vexed the righteous soul of Lot? You know what that means? That means that he got so oppressed, he got so down by the filth and the ungodly wickedness of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he got so pressed down, he didn't even want to get up. If you don't believe that, then you answer the question, how did he get out of Sodom and Gomorrah anyway? He didn't say, let me up and out of here and take off a high tail and out of Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he was so pressed down, he didn't even want to get up. And the messengers of God picked his hide up and carried him out. 
That's how he got out, because he was vexed. He was pressed down. And here it says, and the people were much discouraged because of the way. It has to do with the fact they were dispirited. They were disheartened. They had no heart for God. They had no heart to follow God. They had no heart to please God, to obey God. They had zero heart for God. They were much discouraged because of the way, the Bible says. Well, bless their, no, don't bless their heart. When God saw their discouragement, God didn't say, well, bless their heart and give them a big group hug. That isn't what God did. You know what your Bible says he did? Sent serpents among them to bite them. <gasps> See, in the Old Testament, God is such a vindictive God. Oh, hush. That's ridiculous. People say, why did God send the serpents in there? I think I have a question that's better than that. Why did he wait so long? How could God be so patient with such blatant unbelief? How could God be so patient with such blatant tempting of him? In other words, what, what does it mean they were tempting him? Same thing as the devil tempting Jesus. They were trying to set the conditions by which they would follow God and set the conditions by which they would trust Him as God, and God wasn't meeting their expectations. I don't know what you mean by that, Brother Sam. Well, I'm about to tell you. Because in chapter number 20, three major things happened that discouraged their heart. And in chapter 21, where they got much discouraged because of the way it's where it's stated, there was another event. And what happened was, First of all, they had no water again. You see, by the time we come to Numbers 21, you're, we're in about year 39 of this wilderness journey. Most of that generation, if not all, has already died off that, un, that were so guilty of unbelief. And now in Numbers chapter uh, 21, we're at about year number 39, and they have no water. And you would think that ideally they would say, no water. Well, well, we've been here before. One time, Moses cut down a tree. It's amazing. My parents told me about it. They're dead now. But they, Moses cut down this tree. He chunked that tree into the water, and poison water was made sweet. It was utterly amazing. Another time, Moses took a rod, and he smoked that rod, and water came out and flooded the dry places of the desert. There was enough water there for two to three million people and for their livestock and everything else, and, and it flooded the dry places. Whoa, we're out of water again. What's he going to do this time? But that isn't where they were. No, no. That they had, excuse me, that they had seen his wonderful works, bitter water made sweet. Somebody say amen. That they had seen his water, uh, wonderful works, water coming out of a rock and flooding the dry place of the desert. That they had seen that meant nothing. They're way down here. And now they believe we're going to choke to death out here in the wilderness. Moses, you brought us out here to choke us to death. I would like to say to them, if God wanted to choke you to death, it wouldn't take him 39 years. Somebody help me, please. No. But that's what their attitude was. And you're kicking the dirt mad. Here we are without water again. So did they get water? Yeah, it was quite an event because God said to Moses, go speak to the rock. Moses was so mad at them, he couldn't stand it. And he said, must God give these hard-headed, rebellious people water out of a rock? And he took the rod and smote it three times instead of speaking to it. Which is, you know, is why Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. He too, he lost his cool completely. He's frustrated and angry with the people of God. 
The water came out. Somebody said, well, the water came out. That's all that matters. Wasn't all that mattered to Moses because he didn't get to go into the promised land after all. And so that's one thing that happened, water. Now, they got water, but not the way they wanted it. Amen. The second thing that happened is this. Uh, they wanted to pass through the land of the Edomites. Edomites are the descendants of whom? Esau. Esau, Jacob, twin brothers. Edomites, Israelites. Jacob changed, God changed his name to Israel. And so Edomites, Israelites, cousins. And so the Israelites say to the Edomites, let us pass through your land. We're going to position ourselves to get ready to go into the land of promise that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we want to pass through your land. Read chapter 20. We'll just pass through on the king's highway. We won't bother your cattle. We won't bother your herds. We won't bother your pasture. We won't bother your watering holes. We're just going to pass through and said to the Edomites, their cousins, let us pass through your land. And the Edomites said, you try it. You got a war on your hand. They prepared for war. And they wouldn't let them pass through. So as if it's not bad enough that they had to go without water again, albeit they got water, it wasn't the way, when, and how they wanted it. And, and now, here's what the deal is. They can't even pass through the land of the Edomites. That means it's going to have a longer route, a longer journey. It's going to inconvenience them some more when they just wanted to pass through the land of the Edomites. And the Edomites said, no, you got a war. Two things happened. Third thing that happened, Miriam died Moses' sister. She's the oldest of the three. Aaron died. He's three years older than Moses. And now Aaron and Miriam are dead. Uh, Miriam died, and the Bible doesn't say much about it. Aaron died. They stopped everything and mourned for 30 days. Aaron had played such a significant role in all of that took place from leaving Egypt. And through the first 39 years of the wilderness journey, Aaron was a key player. Not always a blessing, but he was a key player. And they looked to Aaron, and they loved Aaron, and he died. And grief overwhelms the camp. And for 30 days, they grieved the death of Aaron. So now you got, man, just one thing after another. Maybe some of you have had life like that at times. When you think, man, I'm glad that's done, and you realize it got done just in time for something else to happen. And you say, I'll be glad when this is over, and that gets done just in time for something else to happen. Come on, it's like times uh, living this life turns out that way, doesn't it? Just one thing, it seems like I'm dealing with all this at the same time, or one thing after another after another, and that's where they were. Because in chapter number 21, you go there, you know what happens the first thing when they enter chapter 21? Arad the Canaanite, the king, Arad the Canaanite, comes out and declares war on them, and they have to fight a war. Now, God gives them the victory, but still, they had to go to war. War's not fun, even if you win. It's, war's terrible. And so, if you and I, Brother Bill, if we were out on a journey, use your imagination, and the Israelites are camped up here at that particular time, and I say, Brother Bill, let's go check it out and see. Well, I've heard this and I've heard that. Let's just go visit the camp of the Israelites at this year 39 here, where they are situated. And Brother Bill and I are about two miles away. And I say, stop, listen to that. And you can hear. What's that? Murmuring. Murmuring is a negative undertone. 
an undertone of discontent, an undertone of disbelief, an undertone of bitterness, an undertone of anger, and you could have heard him two miles away. Now, I can't prove that from the Bible, but that's just my estimation of things right here, that you could hear him for two miles away as they're murmuring and complaining, and we walk up there, and we find a sentry on the outskirts of the camp, and we say to him, good gracious, we've been listening to this undertone, this undercurrent of discontent for the last two miles forevermore. This sounds like a very unhappy people, and the, and the censor looks at us, and he says, of course it's an unhappy people. Well, what's the problem? Oh, well, thanks for asking. I'll be glad to tell you. And they start in. They said, first of all, first of all, we came to know water again. Now, if you don't know what that's like with this many people, then you ought to be in this place, because we had it at least three times. There might have been more that aren't recorded, but we had it at least three times. And so there was no water. Now, that was the first thing that happened. Well, did you get water? Well, yeah, we got water, but still we had to be without water. And secondly then, the Edomites wouldn't let us pass through the land. The third thing that happened is Aaron and Miriam died. The fourth thing that happens, we have a war with Arad the Canaanite. And you're asking us what happens. Just one thing after another, after another, after another. What are you planning on doing? We're murmuring against God and we're complaining against God and Moses. And we're thinking about getting rid of Moses. Again, they've thought about it before. We're thinking about getting rid of Moses. And we're thinking about going back to the land of Egypt. We don't even have the heart to follow God another mile. And they are much discouraged because the way is so pressed down, they don't want to go on. Hold it. So God sends serpents to bite them. You know, Brother Sam, one of the problems I have with all of this is you're making it sound like discouragement is a sin. I just don't see how you could say, I mean, what are you, a heartless man? Well, it has really nothing to do with my personality or nothing. I know that ain't good grammar, but still, it has nothing to do with my personality or my opinion. I know, but it just make it sound like discouragement is a sin. Okay, well, you go read it yourself later on. And you'll see down about verse number six, when the snakes start biting and people start dying, the first thing out of their mouth is, we have sinned. So I guess that took care of that, didn't it? Is it a sin? They said it was. You know why it was a sin? Because they are trying to put the conditions upon God by which they should follow him as God. In other words, if you look at it this way, he and I are still talking to this guy, and say, let me make sure we understood this. If God, listen, if God would give you water when and how you want water, would you be okay with God then? Well, yes, of course. Okay. So just, just so we understand, if God would, let's say, reenact Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy all the Edomites where you didn't have to mess with them and you could pass through their land and there's not even a chance of them being in your way, would you be happy with God then? Yeah, because they hate the Edomites. The Edomites hated them. So yeah, if God would destroy them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, that'd be great. Okay. Okay, so let me see if we understand this. If God would let you tell him... When people ought to die, would you feel more like following God then? Whoa. I never really thought about it that way. Well, you didn't like when Aaron died. You didn't like when Miriam died. So if God let you tell him when would be a good time for people to die, and then God did it when you wanted, 
would you be okay with God then? Would you be discouraged and turning back and murmuring against God and Moses if God did things the way you want them? If God would reenact Sodom and Gomorrah again, take out Arad the Canaanite, you're going to occupy the land of the Canaanites eventually anyway. Why didn't God just get rid of them by fire and brimstone from heaven and get them out of the way? Would that make you feel better toward God? As a matter of fact, look at me a second. That's exactly what they wanted. If God would do things the way we think he ought to, then we are okay to follow God. But if he won't do what we want him to, we will turn back. We will turn back. Does everybody listen to this? And that's what it is to tempt God. It's exactly what it is to tempt God. If some are sitting in this room right now and circumstances came into your life, and it was difficult, and it was painful, and it left a bitter taste in your mouth? If God, uh, you can't understand why God allowed this, or why God allowed that, or why God let this happen and let that happen? You know what that sounds like? Just like the rest of the unbelieving world. I said that sounds just like the unbelieving world. A 9-11 happens, where's God now? Or some unfortunate event happens and people perish and people die. They start pointing the finger of God. And lo and behold, if there aren't people that occupy chairs and pews in churches, that when things are adverse and go difficult in their own life, they pull the same kind of stunt the unbelieving world does and say, God didn't do it the way I thought he ought to do it. They might never utter those words, but that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, God didn't meet my expectations, therefore he didn't meet my criteria by which he would have my heart to follow him and serve him. And if God won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. You've just tempted God. Which seems to be a rather serious offense. But there's one more part to it. It not only goes from unbelief to tempting God, there's another element. Look down at verse number, what is it, 41 again? Yeah, 41. Look down there. Now, we're going to do this and we'll be done. Look at, look at this. Look at verse 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God, watch this, and limited. Now, this in here stumped me for the longest time. Yet they, yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Look at me a second. Unbelief, tempt God. Limit the Holy One of Israel. Uh, we were talking this morning in Psalm 139, in the Sunday school hour, about the personal nature of God. He knows our down sitting, our uprising. He knows our thoughts afar off, every word that's on our mouth. He knows when we're this way, that way. He knows everything about us. God is without, uh, God is infinite in His knowledge. And God is infinitely wise concerning all aspects of our life, your life personally, our lives in general. Yes, God knows everything. And then I read and loved to preach about God being high above all the nations and His glory above the heavens. I love to read about the fact that the nations before God is a drop of a bucket. I'm just talking about the high and lofty nature of God. Question, how do you limit the Holy One of Israel, the infinite, almighty One. How can one limit the Holy One of Israel? So I, I just, I had to study this thing out. What does it mean to limit God? Who could li <laughs> limit God? So I started studying that thing out. 
Well, here's what I found out. You study the entomology of this word here that we have as limit God. Well, uh, in studying and trying to trace it back as far as we, you, we can know that the word was used, it first meant, limit God, meant like to strike a mark. Strike a mark. Well, I, I got to thinking about that, reading what it said about it. Anybody can go look this up and study it out for yourself. I invite you to. I wish you would. And it means to strike a mark. So I remember going with my dad who farmed and then he was a carpenter in the wintertime. And I remember times with I'd be with my dad to hopefully help him. And he would have a sheet of plywood, maybe a four-by-eight sheet of plywood or a two-by-twelve or something like that. And for whatever reason, he's going to mark it and he's going to cut it. So he takes the chalk box and he has the mark down here meticulously measured and down here at the other end. And then he takes the chalk box string down here and has me pull it down there and put it on that line. And he sizes it up. My dad's looking because this has to be just right for his work to be done right. And he sees it's just right. And he said, okay, strike it, Sam, mark it. So I reach in there, and I grab the string, boom, and that shock on the string leaves that mark on there, and that's where my dad uh, saws the board right there. So I struck a mark. That's what it means. Well, whoop-de-doo, I don't know how to make that work with limiting God. I have no idea. So you keep going, and then the word changes some in the use of it in the process of time. And uh, then it has to do with not just making a mark, but making an engraved mark. An engraved mark, like you would see in some woodwork in the Ozarks and mountain areas, you know, where they do this rustic stuff in wood, and they engrave it in there. Burn it or engrave it, I don't know how they do it, but anyway, it's, it's an indention. Or it might be like when, I think it was General Sherman of the Alamo that would take the sword, and, and in that soft dirt, he would draw a line in the sand. And he would say, if you're ready, to, basically... If you're ready to lay down your life and fight um, Castro or who's the, who was the guy at the Alamo? Who was the Mexican? Huh? Santa Ana. Yeah, Santa Ana. I knew Castro didn't sound like. Uh, right? But anyway, he's a bad one too. But anyway, here's Santa Ana. So he takes the mark and he draws it there. And if you cross this line, it means you're pretty much ready to give your life to f- uh, fend off uh, Santa Ana. If you're not going to cross that line, then leave. And that mark is the line that's drawn right there. That's what limit means. And uh, my, my mind went back, I know it's going to sound weird, but my mind went back to my days of playing marbles. Anybody ever play marbles when you was younger? Yeah. Kids now, bless their heart, they don't know how to play marbles. They know how to push these buttons on all that stuff. And Well, I could beat you, Brother Sam. I've heard him say that, you know. Well, what are you doing? What kind of a stupid game are you playing there anyway? I could beat you. Well, I could beat you at marbles, so there. <laughs> so anyway, I remember playing marbles in grade school. You go out of the playground, you go to the place where there's no grass, and you mark it in the dirt. You can take a stick or you can take a finger if it's real loose dirt, and you mark it, and you make this big circle. And it's an indention right there. And then let's say five of us are going to play marbles, and each of us have, let's say, ten marbles, and we come. And what you do is you put all those marbles in the middle of that circle there. And then every player has that marble with which you shoot. It's called different things, different parts of the country. So whatever marble is you're going to shoot, you have that. 
And then what you do is you start shooting. You determine who's going to be first by either guessing numbers or pointing somehow. And everybody takes their turn. You get one shot and you shoot at those marbles. And the marbles begin to move. And then you start trying to uh, single out marbles. And then you're going to knock them outside of that line. And you've got to shoot from behind the line. If you are caught trying to fudge and cheat while somebody's calling attention to something here and you reach over the line your right hand would probably have to be cut off. So this is serious business here. This Marvel's game. And so it, that, that's a no-no. You can't do that. Or if you are found trying to fudge, somebody's watching this guy as he's about to shoot over here, and you move this marble a little closer that you're going to get, no. <laughs> uh, capital punishment right there. You can't do that. So you got to play within the boundaries, and you violate the boundary, and you're out. And you lose all your marbles. So you shoot those marbles until they're all out. And when they've all passed the line, then everybody's got the marbles that they knocked out. You count the marbles. Whoever has the most gets everybody else's marbles. We're playing for keeps. That's the way you play. I go home with this pie. Brothers eight and ten years older than me, they taught me some good things. It's not like I was great at anything. But I knew how to play marbles. And this day I won. I remember taking those marbles home, walking in the kitchen with my marbles. Uh, my mom said, what do you got there, Sam? I said... My marbles. Well, you don't have that many marbles. I do now. I got that many marbles now. How'd you, what do you mean you do now? I won these marbles. My mom grabs them out of my hand, says we don't gamble in this house. And that ended my professional marble career right there. And I lost all my, I lost my marbles, yeah. And so, but that's what it was. Well, that game had to be played within this boundary that's drawn. And I wonder if God's people haven't in their own hearts and minds set certain boundaries to limit God like they limited God in the wilderness. God, here's the boundaries in which you must work. We'll take water when we want it, how we want it. You take care of the Edomites without causing us any problems and we want to pass through their land. You don't take people from us that we are not ready to give up to death. You just don't do that. You're crossing the boundaries if you do that. And then you deal with the Arad, the Canaanite, like you dealt with the Edomites. If you'll do that, God, play within our circle, we'll follow you. I wonder if there aren't people that because God, who is God, worked outside of your own boundaries. You still come to church, but the joy isn't like it used to be. You still come to church, but there's more of a critical spirit than a joyful spirit. You still come to church, but you criticize and look for fault. Why this and why that and why another thing? And you come to church, but... Instead of getting fed the Word of God, you compare with somebody else you heard that you liked better. Somebody that never had to make any decisions that would affect your life or your church. And you criticize the pastor. And the joy is gone. Why? Well... Well, well, what? 
Well, I don't understand why when that happened, the way that it was handled, the way it affected somebody in my family, or that was a good friend of mine, or on and on and on, and you had some boundaries set, and God didn't work within your boundaries. Do you know who you're talking about, my friend? You're talking about the infinite, almighty God, and you want to put some boundaries on him? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, he will sorely disappoint you because he's not going to work within your boundaries. He's going to work according to his own purposes and his own will. And if you, listen to me, if you have these boundaries and God didn't stay within them, well, it wasn't God, it was, some, it was those people or that people. No, excuse me, just say, stop, stop, stop. This isn't about God and other people and you. It's about you and God. And if you want to be right with God, you can be right with God. If you don't want to be right with God, then you might want to find somebody else to blame, but it doesn't hold water. I said that's weak. That is very weak. It's unacceptable. It doesn't, it, it, listen, it doesn't count with God. If you want to follow God, you can follow God no matter what anybody else does to you, about you, says about you, or anything else. If you want to love God and follow Him, you can love God and follow Him. And if you're waiting on the conditions of others, I, I, I think you need to understand that when it all boils down, it's either what God does or what God permits to happen that is a displeasure to your life. And if you make that the criteria for whether you follow God or not, then you are limiting the Holy One of Israel. That's exactly right. That's a serious matter. That's how the serpents got in on the action and people began to die. Excuse me. After all the mighty works that they saw. I said, after all the mighty works that they saw, because he wouldn't do what they wanted him to, we will turn back. And they did. Now let me just close with this. It was stated already in a prayer tonight. And in the prayer tonight, it was stated that none of us deserve this salvation that is ours. Do you remember that? It was just a few moments ago. He said, no, you've lost track of time. That was a long time ago. Well, it was tonight. Come on, friends. It was stated just a while ago. None of us deserve the precious blood of Christ to be shed on our account. None of us deserve the salvation that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. None of us deserve that load of sin lifted uh, off of us. None of us deserve to be justified as though we had not sinned. None of us deserve to be reconciled to God and have fellowship with Him instead of enmity with Him. None of us deserve this matter called life eternal. None of us uh, deserve the indwelling of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. None of us deserve the manifold favors and blessings of God that we have. None of us deserve that. You have seen if you are as much as saved only, you have seen the wonderful works of God. There's not a greater work of God than the deliverance of one soul from sin, than the, listen, than a person going from death to life.
from darkness to light, we've seen the wonderful works of God. Now, here's what I'm going to say. If in your heart and mind, even if it's secret, even if you deny it, but you know it's there, if you've made some kind of boundaries that God has to work in for him to have your heart and for you to have his joy, if you made some kind of boundaries, you know what would be a good night on the Sunday night of revival? You know what would be a good thing to do? Get on your face before God and say, no boundaries, no limiting. I cannot limit the Holy One of Israel. There are no boundaries, God. I am yours, period. I, come on, many are willing to sing it. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That's, that's pretty bold. Though none go with me, still I will follow. That's pretty strong. A lot of people are able to sing it or willing to sing it. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though all forsake me, I will follow. Seems like I've heard these words before in Scripture, haven't we? And then when the real time of testing came, they did turn back. They did turn back. Now, which version of that song are you going to sing? Sincerely, really, truly. Which one? No turning back? Or I will turn back? Oh, I would never say that. Well, if you never say it, you should never do it. If you know that to any degree you've already done that, this would be a good time to get... Uh, Revived. I said this would be a good time to get revived, renewed, refreshed, erase any imaginary circles completely out of the way. Do like we was teaching at the end of the Sunday school lesson this morning in the 139th Psalm. Search me, O Lord, and know my thoughts. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I am yours. God, you know who's in this room tonight. You know what I don't know, where every life is. I found that as a pastor trying to do your work over the years, I found that I was shocked time and time again to find out things were going on in someone's life that I never imagined, never dreamed, never knew it. I pray, oh God, if there's somebody here that's playing some kind of a game and they know that they are angry, they are bitter, they are discouraged. You didn't perform like they thought you should perform. You didn't work within boundaries they had drawn, whether meaning to draw them or not meaning to draw them. You did not meet their expectations. You worked way outside of those boundaries, your purposes to perform, and they've been angry about it ever since. If there's somebody here tonight, oh God, that needs to just come and say, oh Lord, I'm not going to follow you because you meet my expectations. I'm going to follow you because you are Lord, period. Because you are God. Jesus is Lord. The authority is yours. No boundaries. No lines drawn. No expectations. Oh God. If there's some that need to come, maybe there's somebody here that's never been saved, and they know, they know, they know 
their most basic need is to come to salvation by a personal faith in Jesus, repentant toward you, O God, of their sin, faith in the person of your Son, Jesus, might they come to be saved tonight. Now, might your Holy Spirit work and have control of this invitation for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to have a time of invitation. Several are here at the altar praying, and maybe others ought to come. If God's spoken to your heart, you know there's a need. There's business that ought to be done between you and the Holy One of Israel. If you know there's business that ought to be done between you and God, why don't we get down to business and take care of that tonight, right now, right now. Invitation is on. Sing it. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back.